You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make the confession we just gave with our lips true of our hearts. That we would honestly and humbly confess, not just with words, but believe how deep our need of you really is. Father, we join our voices to the thousands of others who have made this confession even today all around the globe, crying out for your mercy, crying out for you to move and work in our hearts and amongst us, to to change us by your grace. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters around the globe who are gathering for worship in places that are far more challenging than here. In particular, we lift up those in places like the Ukraine, who are facing an unknown danger and who this morning are crying out for you to be their defense, for you to to intervene, for you to be enough for them, to preserve them and to make them faithful in the midst of whatever might come. Father, we pray that you would intervene, that your hand would be present there. that you would bring peace, that you would move, Holy Spirit, in the hearts of leaders and those in authority to come down from their places of pride. Oh, Father, would you protect your people? Would you strengthen them for all that they need that they can't see but you can see? We pray the same for our own hearts this morning. Speak to us through your word and build up your church that we might gaze with open and fresh eyes at the beauty of the gospel of grace in Jesus to us. Pray this in his name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. River City, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. If you need a Bible, some folks from our strike team will be coming around. They can get you a Bible to read along. Our passage from Luke, um, let's see, starting in verse 37. So as you're turning there, uh, verse 37 is where we'll start. And and now if you've been with us for a while, we've been in the middle of a a longer section in Luke's gospel uh, where Jesus is teaching. We've seen him do some pretty remarkable things, and we've heard him say some pretty challenging things, and Jesus isn't done yet. These chapters have some weight to them. And it seems to me that Jesus is applying, I think, just the right amount of pressure to address the things that need to be addressed in the hearts and the lives of the people around him. Think of it like this, as an illustration for our sermon today. Can you, can you remember the last time you had a tiny piece of something stuck in your hand? A, a sliver of wood or a little metal shaving, right? Sometimes it takes a You have to go in with a a pin to dig it out or apply pressure with the tweezers, kind of heavy on 
that area to, to pull out whatever it is that's there. And, and it hurts, right? Kids in the room, like, kind of, they know their finger hurts, but then you come at them with a tweezer and they're like, no, nah, I don't want that. Right? But when the sliver is removed, it's almost instant relief. Right? I mean, it's tender there. You might need a Band-Aid. If you're my kids, you always need a Band-Aid. Right? But, but, but what happens? The, the throbbing pain is gone because what was there, what was buried where it shouldn't have been, is now gone. And that's a picture, I think, of what Jesus is doing in this longer section of Luke's gospel. He's looking at a group of people and saying, you have a giant sliver in your soul. And if you don't deal with it, or better yet, Jesus is saying, if you don't let me deal with it, it's going to get worse. It's going to get infected. You're going to go septic and it can kill you. So so I want to kind of give that as a preface this morning because the entire text we'll read today, verse 37 to the end of chapter 11, is filled with the word woe. (laughs) Six times Jesus says woe. And woe is a word of caution. It's a prophetic word we read all throughout the, the scriptures. When God speaks through his prophets, he pronounces blessings, which are the good things that come from obedience and faith. And woes are the other things that are offered. Woes are curses, which are consequences of disobedience. And so the bulk of our text this morning, and so the bulk of the sermon, is highlighting the problem that Jesus is seeking to address. So I just want to put that out there as we, as we dive in, a little extended uh, introduction this morning, that this at times might seem heavy, but it is not, I pray, hopeless. Rather, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit might take a text like this in the words of Jesus and might, like a loving mom or dad, do some surgery on us to pull out the sliver in our souls so we, we too might find relief. Okay? Sound Okay. All right, now, this text from Luke chapter 11, Jesus is offering a warning to a group of Pharisees and a group of experts in God's law who are not rightly understanding what it means to be clean before God. The thing he's addressing in them is they're getting something terribly wrong. The biblical word we might use is righteous. How is someone made righteous or how is someone seen as good? And the woe is that they aren't viewing how someone is clean, how someone is made righteous, how someone is good properly. They're they're missing it somewhere. Let me give you an illustration on what I mean before we read the text. Let me ask you this question. When is a room clean? Kids in the room specifically, when does your bedroom classify as clean? I was a teenager. My parents would send my brother and I downstairs to the we, had the, we, sh- we shared a large bedroom in the basement of our house, and we'd make our beds and straighten up a few things and, and maybe make a half-hearted attempt to dust off our Little League trophies and put things away, and then we'd come back upstairs. And if we cleaned suspiciously fast, my mom would tend to be the one who would ask, now if I come down and check your room, will I be satisfied with the job you have done? I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but Maybe you can. At which point, my brother Chris and I would have a decision to make. Did we clean the room properly? Was our laundry put away? Were the Legos picked up? Or was it shoved into the closet or under the bed? 
And if you're a kid, you can relate to this feeling, right? And if you're a parent, I know you can relate to this feeling. Now, my mom had patiently shown my brother and I what clean was supposed to look like. So it's not that I didn't know what was expected. But for whatever reason, I didn't always use her definition of what clean bedroom looked like. I used my own definition, right? I didn't move everything to dust, just around the things on the shelves. And because we enjoyed the benefit of a large closet with two giant sliding doors, man, they could hold back just about anything that we could shove in there. And here in Luke 11, Jesus is essentially pressing on them saying, your definition of what is clean is not the same as my definition, what Jesus is saying, of what is clean. And that's the problem. Both for your own hearts and for anyone else who might listen to what you have to say about what it means to be right before God. Those whom they're responsible to disciple and teach and So as we read the text, we're asking that same question. What does it mean to be clean? What does it mean to be righteous before God? How do we get there? And as we read this text, we're asking, what are the ways where we too are attempting to prove to ourselves or prove to others that we're good? How are we falling into the same trap that these Pharisees and experts of the law were falling into? Because the danger is that We can wrongly attempt to measure our own goodness or the goodness of others merely based on external behaviors. There's a danger there. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to give us a new heart, and from a new heart comes a transformed life. So let's get into the text a little bit. Um, And again, um, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37 Uh, If you'll notice in your English translation, there's a few exclamation points, maybe more than in uh, a normal passage, and so I I won't try to scare the children in the room, but I'm going to try to read it appropriately from the text, so uh, you can follow along on the screen. Luke 11, starting in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens, hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, 
it will be required for this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Jesus seems to be aiming at the the connection, or rather the disconnection, between the outside of a person, that is their outward life and actions, and the inside of a person, what's going on in someone's heart. And essentially raising this caution that there's danger in attempting to measure our own goodness and the goodness of others merely based on the outward actions or behavior of a person. Hence, Jesus pronounces woes. Cursed are you if this is how you operate. There's danger here. So so there's kind of two main points from our text today. And they're totally lopsided. One is the woes, which will take up most of our time. The dangers, there's six of them, we'll look at those. And the second point is that there's good news to be found once the slivers, if you will, are removed. Woe and good news. And as I've said it a couple times before, even in the last couple of weeks, all right, now we buckle up and we go after it, okay? Verse 37, Jesus and his disciples are invited for a meal at the home of a Pharisee. And this particular Pharisee, verse 38, Luke tells us was astonished. That is, he marveled. He was wowed in a negative sense, not because Jesus had just cast out a demon or or healed someone who was born blind. No, he's astonished. He marvels that Jesus doesn't wash his hands properly. Now, this wasn't a practical washing of hands before a meal, like parents often tell their kids, hey, go wash up before dinner. This was different. Jesus was refusing to participate in the additional ceremonial washing that religious Jews had added to the basics of God's law. And this opens up the entire rest of the conversation. Verse 39. You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. There's an outside of a person and an inside of a person. And you guys are really good at cleaning the outside, but you've neglected the inside. And in verse 40, Jesus calls them fools, which is a pretty significant insult for them. To be foolish means that they did not fear the Lord. For a fool says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Scriptures also tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, verse 7. So in calling them fools, essentially, here's what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. You don't know God like you think you do. You don't fear God like you say you do. You think too highly of yourselves because you think you know better than God, creating your own rules, and you aren't as wise or as knowledgeable as you present to others. So yes, they were probably offended. And as we read, we see that there's these two groups of people. There's Pharisees and these lawyers, these teachers of the law. The Pharisees were the the holy men, right? The ones who were known for doing all the right things and for not doing all the wrong things. They were lived lives trying to be an example of what that faithfulness to God looked like. 
At least that was their aim. The lawyers, on the other hand, are not like courtroom lawyers. They're like um, scholars, experts on the understanding and interpretation and application of God's law, the law of Moses. So, so the Pharisees' whole mission in life was to keep the law, and the lawyers were the ones who were debating exactly what the law was and how to apply it. And so in order to do that, they created things like the Mishnah, which was a book that kind of delineated out the details of God's law, and, and things like the Talmud, which was a commentary of sorts on the Mishnah, taking God's law and detailing it to like, here's how we actually live this out in our daily lives. And intermixed in that were added ceremonial things like certain kinds of washings before meals, which is what he's astonished that Jesus isn't following. And so all the woes here are connected to this disconnect between outward actions and inward condition. For the Pharisees in particular, there's three woes that Jesus offers to the Pharisees, and they're all directed at how they measured their own goodness based on their own outward actions. And to the lawyers, he's questioning how they viewed other people in relationship to their outward actions. So there's kind of an internal and an external application here. So let's look at these woes, because that's fun. First, the Pharisees. The Pharisees' woes are primarily geared towards how they measure their own goodness. Woe number one, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and love of God. You're so spiritual. You not only tithe out of your crops, bringing the first fruits, the best of your crops, or the best of your livestock. You're so holy that you tithe from your herb garden too. You clip off 10% of your mint or cilantro plant and you bring that as an offering to the Lord as part of your tithe. You give a tenth of everything. You take that really seriously as an outward sign of your righteousness and your goodness. And Jesus says, you do that, good for you, but you don't do the more important things like pursue justice and the love of God. And it's not that they were unaware of this. The prophet Micah in Micah chapter 6 says this, He, God, has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? But you have chosen the easier and more visible actions to convince yourself of how good you are. But the more accurate snapshot of the condition of your heart is are you moved as God's heart is moved towards justice and mercy? Jesus continues in verse 42, These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others, meaning this, yes, everything you have is from the Lord, all the way down to your spice rack. Everything is from the Lord. So yes, you should be open-handed and generous to offer back to God in worship the best of everything, even all the way down to your herb garden but not at the expense of the weightier things. This is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. Now for us, we probably don't go to our gardens in the summer and pull a couple of carrots or zucchini, although we all know we have zucchini to spare when we grow zucchini. We don't pull those out and bring them into the offering basket here on a Sunday morning, although someone did this morning after first service threaten to bring 
garlic powder because they have two of them and put it in the offering. And I'm like, praise the Lord, right? But we don't, we don't do it that way. Maybe for us it's this. Where are we content? Where are we content with our outward expression of worship in order to cover over a heart that's not very worshipful? What are the things that we use to convince ourselves that we're not that bad? Woe number one, you give to God what He requires of you, sort of, but not everything. Woe number two, verse 43. Woe to you, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you love to be loved. This one smarts a little, I think. Because Jesus is saying, your view of yourself is directly related to the approval of others, of you. See, the front seats in the synagogue were reserved for honored guests and VIPs and particularly influential teachers or scholars. So we all sit in the back of the church and leave the front rows up. In the synagogue of the day, man, you'd want to get as close to the front as possible because that would show some prominence. So maybe there's a false humility, which is why we all sit in the back. I don't know. We'll cover that another day. But Jesus is saying there's danger here. If your view of self is directly tied to how well other people think of you, you want people to see you at the store or in the market and say, man, isn't that the guy who does the thing? Isn't that that gal who's, right? This is a woe for our social media age, isn't it? Like, I don't even have to stretch the comparison. It's kind of clear. You can try to argue with me on that, but I think I'm right. You perceive yourself to be doing well. You perceive yourself to be influential. You, you, you gauge your own social status or be on the right track in direct proportion to the clicks and likes and follows and comments. The woe here is seeking of validation from men rather than from God. Because if you can look good and you can show proof that others like you and respect you and call you brave and wise, then you can wear that approval like a mask to cover what's really going on inside, which Jesus tells the Pharisees is full of greed and wickedness. But you can't see the inside because look how shiny and pretty the outside is. Our carefully curated lives. Woe to you because you love to be seen Woe three, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are, like, you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. In this culture, pretty much anything related to death was considered unclean. And so an unmarked grave was a big no-go for anyone religious because it was possible that you could be walking along and accidentally step on or over an unmarked grave and immediately you'd be unclean and subject to the ceremonial washing and cleanliness process. You have to start all over again. And Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. You don't even know that you're dead inside. In Matthew's account of this interaction, Jesus refers to them as whitewashed tombs. You have a beautiful headstone, but inside are full of dead man's bones, he says. Do we see the danger here? That it's possible to look on the outside like we are all good. But inside, 
be full of death. And that's the danger of these woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you if you think you're all good because you do all the right things out here. But in, in here, you're, you're sick. I think that's how these three woes can be summed up. Woe to you who think you're good because of all of how this looks, but you don't know you're dead inside. And that's what's dangerous. You don't even know it. You're deceiving yourselves. As author John Ortberg says, he says it this way, Just as we have yet to discover the outer limits of the universe, so we have yet to discover the outer limits of the human capacity for self-deception. Ouch. You don't even know that you're dead inside. Now, that's the woes to the Pharisees. There's three more. It gets better. Woe to the lawyers. If Jesus' primary concern with the Pharisees was them deceiving themselves, his primary concern with the lawyers seems to be that they were not only deceiving themselves, but they were deceiving others. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered Jesus and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I I, I admit, I I chuckle when I read this just a little. I'm I'm offended too, Jesus. And and I don't want to be careful not to add to Scripture, but you can almost picture Jesus turn to him and say, Oh, I'm not done with you. I didn't forget about you guys standing over on the other side of the room, right? The Pharisees are self-deceived, and you are too, but... But people look to you for help in knowing and understanding God. So not only are you deceiving yourselves, but you're deceiving others. Verse 46, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The challenge here is the the legal experts of the law, you've made lists of additional rules to keep, and you require that anyone who would follow God, would also have to be faithful in keeping your rules. You're adding burdens to others, and you just are burying them in the weight of regulation. Jesus is pressing here on their hypocrisy. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about hypocrisy next week as we get into Luke chapter 12. I told you it's fun. It keeps going. Luke chapter 12. But the, the idea here is they would require others to do things that they themselves would not do. They had a set of rules for some other people and a different set of rules for themselves. So so let's be really clear right here when we talk about hypocrisy. Because it's almost too easy as we read the Gospels to get indignant at the Pharisees and the lawyers for their hypocrisy and say, man, those guys are the worst. Look at how hypocritical they are. But I've been convicted that we, the collective we, need to be willing to consider that maybe Jesus is talking to us here as well and not just the religious folks. See, we are consistently inconsistent as it relates to this part of our own spiritual lives where we judge others mercilessly for things that are present in our own hearts. And part of that, I think, is just our fallen condition. This is something that's still working its way out of us by God's grace over time until we see him in glory. The hypocrisy isn't that we do that, that we're inconsistent in our application because we all do it. The hypocrisy is that we pretend that we don't, that we pretend that we're not guilty of these things. And so this is dangerous for those of us who do profess faith in Jesus. And it's particularly dangerous for any of us who would presume to be leaders 
Now, we know that we can't per- obtain perfection in this life, but are we humble? That by God's grace, we are growing into the promise that our words line up with our lives, and where they don't, we repent and we ask for the Spirit's help. Oh Lord, would you make me this kind of pastor? Oh Lord, would you make me this kind of person whose life lines up with his words more and more? Would you keep me from this dangerous deception of hypocrisy? Woe number five, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now this one is interesting. Outside of the city of Jerusalem, there would be tombs and statues honoring prophets of the Old Testament. And you might expect that, right? Except the people who built those statues and built those tombs to honor the prophets were the descendants of those who ignored and killed those prophets. Essentially, Jesus is calling them out for borrowing on the credibility and goodness of the prophets as if to align themselves with them. The prophets of old were respected and they have authority and so I'm going to build a monument to them and trade on their credibility as if I'm with them. But Jesus got done telling them, you have in your midst the best and final prophet and you reject me. So your praise of the prophets is hollow. It's empty. Now, we don't build monuments to, to prophets, but we attach ourselves to certain leaders, right? Or personalities or movements to give ourselves credibility. And some of that can be okay, right? We want to align ourselves with, with certain people or groups that we find encouraging or we respect them. We don't know if they'd want us on their team, but man, we'd love to be on their team. Here's an example. Here's, here's what I mean. I read this quote, uh, I've read it a couple different times, uh, and every time it just punches me in the face. Uh, Dr. John Piper writes this, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. (laughs) Say, ouch, right? Oh, man, is that convicting. And although Pastor John is not a prophet, and what he says is not Scripture, Here's how I think it lines up with what Jesus is telling them about their admiration, their false admiration of the prophets. The danger is that I can make this, give this quote to you, and you all go, ooh, that's convicting. But then I can leave here in just a few minutes, go home, and live like he's not talking to me. He's only talking to you. But you think, because I quoted him, that I am for sure must be winning in this area. This is what Jesus is saying to the lawyers about the prophets. You hold the prophets' words out to convict the people, and that's good. But you shut your own ears to the same words. You tell others to honor God's word, and you ignore it for yourselves. Jesus continues in verses 48 through 51 about the coming judgment on this wicked generation. That judgment is coming for them should they not repent. And we talked a little bit about that last week, so for, this, for, for our time now, we'll, we'll keep going. That's woe number five. And the final woe that Jesus offers from verse 52, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. 
you did not go into the knowledge room and you kept everyone else out too. This is kind of the the final straw, I think, for Jesus. For all of your expertise, for all of your enlightenment, for all of your study, you really know nothing. And what's worse, you keep everyone else in the dark as well. Brings us all the way back to verse 40 when Jesus says, you fools. I mentioned this earlier, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Not only do we deceive ourselves, but in what ways do we obscure the beauty of the gospel by actually making it harder for people to come to Jesus? In the case of these lawyers, their message was essentially, here's what you must do to clean yourselves up and make yourselves acceptable to God. And if you do those things, then we'll let you in to our little club and you can stand with us as the best of the best. And Jesus says, that's not how this works. That road leads only to guilt and to shame and to death. And if that's your approach, you're deceiving yourselves and you're deceiving others. Because we know. We know from the the breadth of Scripture, that there is nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves acceptable and righteous before God. And then our passage ends. As he went away from there, verse 53, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke Jesus to speak about many things, lying and wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The, the reality is they wanted to kill him. They were offended, and rightly so. They should have been. Jesus was offending them for their self-righteousness and their self-deception. So the text ends there, but the sermon doesn't. And here's why. Because if that is not the way to understand God, not the way to understand ourselves, not the way to understand how we deal with sin, what is the way? And so here's the good news that Jesus is implying as he picks apart their deception, their self-deception. And it comes down to this idea of foolishness versus fear. If it's the fool who doesn't fear God, if this fool is the one who says there is no God, then wisdom begins with an acknowledgement that there is a God and that we should fear him. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about awe and reverence and bowing down because God is holy. It's it's the covering of our eyes because we can't stare into the sun of His brightness. So rather than pretending that my sin and my unrighteousness doesn't exist, rather than making a list of acceptable sins for me and a different list for you, The good news is that Jesus invites us not to cover our sin, but to confess it. To confess it. In Luke 18, which we won't get to now probably until next year um, because we take too long to go through Luke. Uh, Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Sound familiar? This is what Jesus says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Tax collectors were seen as kind of like uh, lowbrow society. We didn't like them. 
They worked for the IRS, essentially. If you work for the IRS, I don't think that of you. I'm just saying culturally, okay? One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, this is how he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, clean, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the good news of the gospel, that we don't have to cover our sin and compare ourselves to others. We can rightly look at God, who is holy and perfect, and we can humbly say, I can't pay for my own sin. I know what your word says, and at every turn, it finds me more and more guilty. I am not worthy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says in John chapter 6 that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus always receives a genuine chest-beating confession, and always meets it with His grace. Let me say that again. Maybe you didn't hear me. Jesus always receives a genuine chest-beating confession and always meets it with His grace. And it's not that God isn't concerned with our outward actions and behavior. Don't misunderstand me. To quote Jesus, these things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The caution from this text is that it's possible to have an outwardly good-looking life, and to still have a hidden, inward, wicked heart. But a heart that is transformed by God's grace, by His power at work within us, will, by that same grace, result in a life that looks more and more like Jesus. Now, I know this section of Scripture is is a little heavy, and this sermon was a little bit longer and kind of lopsided in its content, but I think it's important that we get this sliver of self-deception out of our souls as individuals and as a church, because this is core gospel theology, and we are all at risk of falling into the trap of attempting to measure our own goodness or judge the goodness of others based merely on external behaviors or associations or actions. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes to give us a new heart, and from that new heart comes a transformed life. That's what Jesus is pressing on. In that is life. In all of the other approaches here leads to death. So as we come to the communion table, here's my prayer that we would lay down our defenses, that we would strip off the shells that we put up in front of us, the facades of, I'm doing great, I'm fine, look how great I'm doing, that we would be willing to lay all that down, the self-protection, and that we would receive the grace that Jesus offers as we are reminded that he offers himself for us. He forgives us, He makes us clean, and in Him now we have life. Can we we pray with me? 
Father, we thank you that you are holy and good and perfect. And in seeing you rightly, And honestly, we see our own shortcomings. And we are tempted in order to save face and to protect ourselves. We're tempted to put up a facade or make a list of things we can attain. But the reality is we we know we fall short and we know we're in need. And so would you meet us now in the place that we sang earlier, that we need you. You're our one defense, that you are our righteousness, not of our own. So as we come to the table, would you give us a fresh picture of the, the beauty and the undeserved mercy of God in the face of Jesus who dies for us to wash us clean pray you'd continue to renew your people that you do the work Holy Spirit of pulling out those things in our hearts and in our souls that if left untended will just continue to fester that we can come to you, we can lay all that down, and in you we know we will find mercy and grace. Would you bring healing to your church by removing those things that need to be removed and applying your grace as seen in Jesus, in his death for us, and in his resurrection? Encourage us as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.